0: We're gonna talk about Christmas today, is that alright? Is that okay, all right? Let me ask you a question, all right, because with this whole series, what we're really trying to do is try to get a fresh perspective, a new look, look again at the story of Christmas and what it can teach us, what it can mean to us, how we can understand it a little bit better. So let me just start. Last week we talked about favorite Christmas movies and that kind of thing. I want to know just kind of overall, what's your favorite thing about Christmas? What's your favorite part of Christmas? What is it when you hear Christmas you think, I can't wait for that? Christmas lights. Did I hear that? All right. Music. music. Who's my music person over here? Who said that? There you go. There's Casey. All right. What do you got, Andrew? Music. music. Yeah, hey, awesome. All right. Anybody else? What you got? That's it. That's what? Family. Good answer. That that gets you lots of brownie points with the parents. Good job, Tori. All right. Now, if you ask kids that question, what do you think is at the top of their list? presence, right? Like toys and I don't know if you know this or not but there are hot toys every year new set of toys that are the hottest toys on the planet and I thought we still got a couple of weeks before Christmas that it might be good just to show you let you know what the hottest toys of the season are this year all right so if these aren't on your list kids you still got a couple of weeks to get them on the list I heard some chuckling from parents like no that ain't happening all right okay so here we go here's the first one that's on the list all right this is the top five toy this year. It is the Nerf Rival Nemesis MXVII. What is that? That's the uh, 9710K, all right? I don't know what it, that's. That can't be a Roman numeral, all right? So that's thousand, whatever it is. It can't be how many pellets are in there, but the beauty of the Rival. M-X-V-I-I-10-K is you can load it with pellets and pelt your friends and family for seconds on end with just pure joy. All right. So the rival, if you don't have that on your list, there, there you go. All right. Maybe some adults would like that for control at home for things. All right. All right. Second, here's the second one. Back for the second year, it is the Hatchimal. Guaranteed to work this year and not have to bring out your hammer to open it, all right? I don't know if you heard that, a little malfunction with some Hatchimals last year. They didn't open, and then you had to smash it, and when you smashed it, they didn't work properly. And so they're guaranteeing this year 100% hatching, all right? And so you, everybody, know, everybody know what a Hatchimal is? It's a little egg. At some point, I don't know exactly, it starts to crack and open up, and when you open it up, you have a joyful little... animal of some sort inside of it, a hatchimal. Alright? another one. This was on the top five. I was unaware of this one, but I'm excited about it. It's the unis inflate, stick, and create. So apparently you take these little bubbles, you inflate them, you stick them together, and I was really excited about it, so I saw the next picture, and then I decided that these will never be allowed in our house. Alright? Here's the next picture. And parents would say never in the house, right? I mean, because that is that is way too much. This is the parental definition of a nightmare right there. All right. Now now, for bigger kids, there 's a toy out there they wouldn 't even call it a toy necessarily it 's a, a lifestyle um, addition that has become the, the hot thing for this year that 's becoming more and more difficult to find and it is simply the Nintendo Switch, alright, the Mario game has come out, people are excited about this, this is in the top three now of gifts most requested for kids, excited about this, you can get it with the Grey Con or the Red and Blue, you can get it with Super Mario, you can get it with Mario Kart, you can get it with Zelda, all the Mario stuff, right? But does anybody know the number one hardest to find, most... Loved toy of this Christmas season. Steve, what do you got over there? A fingerling. Look at Steve Moore up on toys. There it is right here. It's a Fingerly's robotic monkey. You put it on your finger and then it reacts to you. Like over 70, 80, 90 reactions it has towards... You. It's not a real monkey. They don't make monkeys that size. And if they did, they grow bigger and they uh, tear your face off. And so you don't want those. <laughs> all right. This is a robotic one that you can't find anywhere. Now, you can find... This has become so popular. There are knockoffs that do not work. But you're looking for the original Fingerling by Wowee Industries. Right? That sounds official, doesn't it? That sounds completely ripped off, too. All right? And so... That's it. So all this got me to thinking about what was your favorite toy that you have ever gotten for Christmas? What's the favorite toy you ever gotten for Christmas? In the first service I asked this, I loved it. We had uh, Betsy Wetsy dolls. Anybody remember the Betsy Wetsy doll? Uh, I didn't either. All right. All right. Roller skates that were made out of like um, metal. All right. We had metal roller skates. All right. Some old school stuff. What about you? What's somebody, somebody, your best Christmas gift you ever got? What's that? Chris, you're in the back. You got your hand raised politely. What do you got? A Tonka fire truck that shot real water. Not pretend water. Real water. All right. All right. Somebody else? What? Bicycles over here. A BB gun. Was it Red Rider? Probably. Did you shoot your eye out? No, you still got it, so no. All right. I was thinking about three of my favorite gifts growing up, and I'll just share those with you real quickly. First of all, one Christmas I got snake eyes. From GI Joe, which threw, I mean, this really shifted your worldview because Snake Eye was dressed all in black, but he was the good guy, and Storm Shadow was dressed all in white. He was the bad guy. For a kid, it just messed with your mind. But I loved Snake Eyes. Also loved Quick Kick. Also loved Duke. I, you know, loved Sergeant Slaughter. I loved the GI Joe brand. Zartan is buried in my yard because he got killed in action one day. Like it, <laughs> I loved, loved GI Joe. Any other GI Joe fans out there? Look at that. That's what I thought. All right. This, this, then one year, G.I. Joe got upstaged. Because there was a new toy in town, and it was Prime, like Optimus Prime. And I got Optimus Prime for Christmas, greatest thing I could ever imagine. Whole family's coming over, I'm excited to show it off. My dad drove semis for a living for a while, and so I felt like there was a bond between Optimus and myself. And so I got it, some of you have heard this story, first day I got it, I went to transform it from the semi, as it came in the package, to the robot, I broke the leg off right immediately and decided the only thing I knew to do was to put it back in the package like it was in pristine condition, take it upstairs and ask my brother to transform it, and then tell my parents when he broke my Optimus Prime. (laughs) Completely true story right there, alright? But the greatest, and I've told you this before, the greatest single Christmas gift I ever got was the original Nintendo Entertainment system. Comes full circle with the switch. My life changed, you know, playing Duck Hunt and Super Mario Brothers and all of that. It was a life altering experience and uh, I'm a little nostalgic for those days. All right. Did you know there's a toy hall of fame? NES has made it into the toy hall of fame. Do you know there's a toy hall of fame? I was looking up some of the things for Toy Hall of Fame, and I came across one that I remember vividly. This is pre-video game days, and one that I loved as a kid. And it was the simple (laughs) Viewmaster. How many of you remember the Viewmaster, right? Now, some of you will remember life before the Internet, and even life before cable TV, when your world was very small, right? Right? Like, the world you knew was your house, your school, your town, and that was it. Like, occasionally you got to go to the big city, or you got to hear stories from a friend that took an extravagant vacation to another state, right? And so, in those simple times, I remember of as a child being given a view master. And as silly as it seems now, for this generation, this simple thing... Really did feel like it transformed you to somewhere else. You could put it up. It was like the original VR headset. By the way, do you know that's what ViewMaster's making today is VR headsets? Makes me cringe a little bit. Like, I just want that, right? You put it up. I'm getting to be an old man. I know. I want that, alright? Put it up. You could slide something. I remember that I had a, I had one of those, what do they call those things? Wheels? And you put in there with the film in it. I had one that took you on a tour of the world. And so you like went to the Roman Colosseum and the Amazon jungle. And I remember flipping through that. And for my life, that was as real of an existence of seeing it as anything I could see. Um, I remember having one that showed the solar system. And this was when they had come out with the 3D one. And it looked like the planets were coming and the stars. And it just changed my understanding and my view of the world. The truth is, what happened is, Viewmaster just became a filter through which you were able to see something bigger in the world. And what I want to do today is ask the question, How should we view a particular set of events in the story of Jesus? Because our worldview determines how we look at everything in life. Our circumstances, our past, our relationships, our finances, our career, our school. When we think about Christmas, what we really want to think about is how should what we read, should what we see, should we understand, change how we view our circumstances, our past, our relationships, our finances, our career, our school. Last week we looked at Luke chapter 1 and we looked at the story of Mary, but this week I want us to look at Luke chapter 2 starting in verse 18. And most of this is going to be on the screen, but I want to invite you, if you've got your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 2 verse 8, or if you don't have a Bible with you, maybe you've got a smartphone with an app on it, you can look there, or in front of you in the pew is a copy of the Bible from the version from which I will be reading, if you want to open that, because I'm going to read a little past what's going to be on the screen, and I want you to be able to follow along. Luke chapter 2. I want to ask you a quick trivia question that most of you are going to know. To whom did the angels first announce the birth of Jesus? The shepherds. Now, here's what I want you to know. What's interesting about that is this group of people to whom they're going to reveal the birth of the Son of God, Jesus, the Messiah, was not a religious group. In fact, they probably had little, if nothing, to do with religion. There's no connection to the Christmas story for them before this. They are one of the most unlikely groups to be chosen to hear the message of Jesus. In fact, growing up, no one wanted to be a shepherd. Like Nobody thought, man, when I get older, man, what I really want to do is to be a shepherd. Nobody wanted that. It was an outcast job. It was not on-the-outskirts job. It was a job reserved for people that couldn't find work in other places. Now, we even saw that when I was growing up, and we used to put on Christmas pageants. Because when you think about the roles in the Christmas pageant, the group of guys that didn't have anything else to do became what? The shepherds. Go get your dad's bathrobe, put on some slippers, and you're a shepherd, Right? I mean, there were other glamorous roles. If you could sing, you were in the angel choir, right? If you were if you were a guy that could could do some acting, you were a wise man or you were Joseph. Girls wanted to be Mary or in the angel choir. And the shepherds were, well, we've got a group of five or six boys that don't have anything else to do. Let's let them be a shepherd. Now, I'm sorry if you always wanted to be a shepherd and thought that was a prestigious thing and I've just ruined your childhood. But that's the way it kind of was, all right? And this is the reason in the day of Jesus when shepherds weren't thought very highly of. They were weird. They lived by themselves with animals, sleeping out in the open with animals every night. It was not a job you shot for. It was a job you ended up with. They couldn't make it to the temple because they couldn't leave their flock. They had a bad reputation. People did not trust them. In fact, they had names that were attached to being a shepherd, like crooked or thief. They were suspicious of shepherds. And so, if a shepherd walked into town, people clutched their money a little tighter. People moved to the other side of the street. They cast a glance at them of suspicion. They were so, they were thought of so lowly. They weren't even allowed to testify in court because nobody would believe what they said. Luke, chapter 2, starting in verse 8. In the same region, shepherds. Now the original audience, when they read this, they were like, why are shepherds in the story? That's not what we expected. In the same region, shepherds were staying out in the fields and keeping watch and night over their flock. Then an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. Now here's the reason for that. First of all, I want you to notice something. If you just read the scripture as it is stated and not read it through the prism of watching numerous Christmas specials every year. The appearance that we have in this passage and in the original language is that the angel just suddenly stands in the midst of them. Not in the sky, flying, like, standing there. So I want you to get this picture. These are guys that probably have fire built. they probably got a few guys laying around the fire, probably sleeping. they got some other guys keeping watch over the flock. And as they're kind of out there, their job is twofold. One is they don't let any sheep get away. Two, they don't let anybody or anyone or anything get into the camp. So their two priorities are don't let a sheep run away and don't let a wolf or another human or somebody that's going to steal, don't let them in. And so when they're sitting around the fire having a conversation and they're looking to their left, they're looking to their right, they're talking about something. And then they turn around and there's an angel standing in their midst. The first thing they think is, how did he get here? Second thing is, what's he going to do to us? And it's not just an angel standing there, it's an angel with the glory of the Lord shining around them. And what we understand from scripture is that when the glory of the Lord shines, it is a piercing light. It is a, it is something to behold, but it is something you cannot look at. And it says when they find a man or a figure or a being that did not be, was not there a second ago, suddenly there with the glory of the Lord shining around them, they are terrified. I mean, imagine waking up tomorrow morning, your alarm goes off, you hit it, the snooze 14 times, and then you finally get up. And the moment you stand up and your eyes open, there is a man with the glory of God standing beside your bed. That'd be frightening, right? Like, how did you get here? Imagine you're on a family vacation, riding in the car, and suddenly in the back seat, there appears an angel. Like, we just take for granted that they received the angel of the Lord and were excited. This was a what-is-happening moment. The angel says, don't be afraid, because that's the first words of angels always, apparently. Do not fear. For look, I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the city of David, a Savior was born for you who is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped tightly in cloth and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was a multitude of the heavenly host with the angel praising God and saying, Now, if one angel scared them, what do you think the multitude suddenly appearing did? Glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to people He favors. Three things I want us to see in this passage, and then I want to relate it to why that's important for us, and then our reaction to it, and then we're done. The first thing we see in this passage is this, that is amazing and a new view of about Jesus that we need to get. We look through the viewmaster of life and see things in a new way. The first thing we see here is that Jesus came in a relative obscurity. It's just fascinating to me. I mean, the angels are kind of a grand entrance, but the angels don't announce it in the middle of Bethlehem. They go to the outskirts of town where nobody will be to a group of people that nobody would trust. It's not just that they were born in a manger, in an inn, in the backwoods of nowhere, in the middle of a country that nobody really thought highly of in that moment. It's that the first announcement comes to a group of people that no one would trust that they were telling the truth if a shepherd walked up to him, you're not going to believe this, man. The Messiah has been born in a stable, in a manger in Bethlehem. Somebody will look at him and go, boy, I'm going to tell you. Y'all really need to check on what you're eating out there around the fire and what's happening. Because that's an amazing story you told and cannot be true in the least. Like, I want to give you credit. That's creative. And what you just did, that's creative. I don't know. if There's no way it can be true, but it's creative. I can't help but think when I think about the birth of Jesus and the announcement of Jesus' birth to the shepherds. The number of people that were right next to him or in a couple of minutes walk from him that never realized he was there. Because he came in obscurity. And it's not just that he was born in a stable manger around animals with his mom and dad as we talked about last week that have been ostracized from their family it's that he lived in obscurity i mean think about the bible tells us about the birth here and it tells us about one event when he was 12 years old and that's all we know about jesus for the first 30 years of his life he lived 30 years without anybody knowing who he is except his mom and dad A few shepherds on the front end, and some kings from the east. It's not just that he was born in a manger and that the first people he told were people they wouldn't trust. I mean, think about the fact that some of you know this from studying the Bible, from hearing the story. What's the first trip he takes as a child? Is his mom and dad flee to Egypt to escape Herod, and he lives as a refugee in Egypt for a while. He came in relative obscurity. I heard a story this week about a, a little boy that was looking at a picture someone had painted of that famous scripture in Revelation where it says that Jesus stands at the door and knocks. And the picture is of a house, and on one side is Jesus, and maybe you've seen a picture like this, just like his, his hand has just gently knocked on the door, and on the inside is a family that is, looks like they are completely unaware of what's happening. And the little boy looked at his dad and said, Dad, why aren't they opening the door for him? And they said, I don't know, son. That's a good question. I don't know why they're not opening the door. And the son said, maybe it's because all the things that are happening inside are preventing them from being able to hear that Jesus wants to come in. And you think about the clamor and the noise of Bethlehem that day. You think about the clamor and the noise of our lives and how many times we refuse to hear that Jesus has a desire for our lives, a direction for us, because we can't hear him knocking. The second thing we see in this passage is not only did he come in relative obscurity, but he also came in humility. Now, where do we get that? Well, we get that from this story in particular in verse 11 and 12. So in verse 11, they announced this great thing. Today in the city of David, a Savior was born for you who is the Messiah. And I am sure that the people, the shepherds were like, that's cool for you to let us know. That's awesome for us to know. But where is he? I mean, how are we going to know this? And this is what they're told. And I can guarantee that the shepherds did not imagine what was about to be said to them. We've become so used to it, so common through it, we think, man, this is the way it happened. But for them, they would have never imagined the Savior of the world, the Messiah of his people, to be wrapped in a cloth and lying in a feeding trough. In fact, the scripture tells us that they, there was no room for them in the inn. Well, the inn in that day, I know sometimes when we think of inn, we think of a little less nice hotel. But in that day, an inn was basically an open courtyard surrounded by stalls. They didn't have a building they could go into. They didn't even have room in the inn, which was the open courtyard surrounded by stalls. They had to go to a place where it was outside the inn. And when she has her baby, they use this cloth that was to be used for things not like wrapping a baby, but for cleaning and removing stuff and wraps their baby and lays him in the feeding trough of the animals. Part of the reason the shepherds were untrusted and weren't allowed to be part of the society is because they spent so much time around animals and the dirt and the grime and the amount of unclean living that comes from that. And yet they hear that the Savior of the world is lied in a manger, a feeding trough right next to all that stuff. He came in humility. And then the last thing we see in this passage is he came to the unworthy. Of all the people they could have announced this birth to, the shepherds were one of the least likely groups. In fact, in those days, the religious leaders of their days, the preachers of their days, had six professions that were unworthy of God's forgiveness. And can you guess what one of them was? Shepherds. Unworthy. Unworthy. My guess is when they came to the shepherds and they say, hey, we want you to know there's a savior born. He's in the city of David. He's in a manger that the first thought the shepherds were like, well, man, we're going to go. But they're going to be like tons of people there because if they've told us, they've told everybody. Like there's no way they thought we were the first people that God came to. They thought we're the last people. They just got the news to the outside of the city. They've been talking to everybody else. And so I would love to have seen their faces when they arrived at the scene and there's nobody else there but them. Jesus came to them not because they were worthy, but because they were loved. One of the things that we need to hear again and again and again is God comes to us and offers us salvation not because we're worthy, but because we're loved. So three things. He came in obscurity, he came in humility, and he came to the unworthy. And we need that because we need a Savior who can identify with us. Only when he can identify with us can he do something about our situation. And the scripture makes it clear for those first 30 years of his life, he was completely a human being. Completely God, completely human. He understood what it meant to learn how to walk. He understood what it meant to get hurt. He understood what it meant to have your heart broken. He understood what it meant to build relationships, to be betrayed, to have his life lived as a human being. And only when we have a Savior who can identify us can he do something about the Condition in which we find ourselves. Hebrews tells us that we have a high priest who is not unsympathetic. He is completely sympathetic with us because of the fact that he has lived our lives, been tempted in every way we have, and yet resisted. We have a Savior who understands us. In political races, there is always a race to be the man or the woman that is the candidate of the common man. Usually, it's among billionaire politicians trying to tell people that make $35,000 a year, I understand who you are. Now, you just think about the last election we had, all right? Whichever side you're on, you had Hillary Clinton, part of the Clinton family, that has made millions of dollars on politics and has been a part of politics since the mid-90s. Major, national-level politics. Trying to let everybody know, I know how you feel. Ivy League educated. Common man. On the other side, you had Donald Trump who famously said, I'm just like everybody else. I had to do it all on my own. I only got a million dollar loan from my dad to start. Right? I was like, I don't know how many people out there that I know have gotten a million dollars from their dad to start. Right? Eli, you're not getting a million dollars to start anything. All right? I don't have it to give because I'm a common, like, li- listen, right? We, common man doesn't have a million dollars to go, here, son, take it, do what you want to do. Well, here's the thing about Jesus. Born in a manger, lived 30 years in obscurity, understands what it means to be human. He is a common man with completely uncommon humility and love. We need a Savior who would humble himself all the way to the cross. Because we need a Savior who is for us the unworthy. And what the story of Christmas reminds us of is there was nothing that would stand in the way of him humbling himself even to death on a cross. And so when we hear this story again, we ask the question how do we respond? That our Savior loved us, cared for us, all the way. How do we respond? Well, this won't be on the screen, but if you can look at verse 15, chapter 2, verse 15 in your Bibles. Listen to the rest of the story. When the angels had left and returned to heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go straight to Bethlehem and see what has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. They hurried off. I love that. They hurried off. All indications are they didn't take their flock with them because that would have caused a little bit of a disturbance carrying a flock into town. So they leave their flocks. They say, we don't care. This was what we got to do. They go to the baby who was lying in the manger. And after seeing them, they reported the message they were told about the child and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. Mary was treasuring up all these things in her heart and meditating on it. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had seen and heard, which were just as they had been told. What's our reaction to this? Two things, same thing the shepherds did. First of all, we look upon the story, we look upon our Savior, and we think about God, and we stand completely in awe. Now, all shows itself in a couple of ways. First of all is in fear, and they were in awe of the message that came from the angels, but they are in awe and joy in the message that comes through the Savior. One of the things that I do regret about some of the modern technologies that we have is that it seems to have stripped us of the ability to have genuine awe. We think we got everything figured out. And as ridiculous as it sounds, that little plastic viewmaster for me transported me to places where I saw God's creation up close and personal and instilled in me a sense of awe. Something we desperately need. We need to be someone who looks upon Christmas and is overwhelmed with awe. I think about this this week when I saw a picture, a famous picture that many of you may not have seen. And we're going to wait a minute to put it up because I want to give you the background of it and then I'll show it to you in just a second. But it's a picture that has to do with Andre the Giant. How many of you know who Andre the Giant is? All right. So either as a wrestler or the Princess Bride, he famously had a big role in that. All right. He was a huge human being. He was a popular wrestler, and as his name implies, he was a giant. He was over seven feet, four inches tall, and weighed way over 300 pounds. How would you like to face him in a wrestling ring, right? Everywhere he went, people stopped and looked up at him his amazement. That wasn't unusual. They'd never seen anything like it before. When he walked through a place, people stopped and looked. But there was one time when there was an interaction... Captured by a photographer, that illustrates the reaction that the shepherds had that night. One day, as Andre the Job was walking through an airport, a little boy comes up to him. And the little boy had never seen anyone that big before. And as he walked up to Andre, they both stopped. And Andre looked down, and the little boy looked up. It's an amazing scene. And fortunately for us, someone was there to capture it. And here it is. Now you can tell this was taken recently because of the clothing attire of the young boy and everybody at the airport in suit and tie, alright? But man, I love this picture. Look at the expression on that boy's face. It's just joy and wonder and awestruck, right? Looking up like, how in the world is that happening? But one of my favorite parts of this picture is not the boy's expression, it's Andre's. Now here's the thing about it. Andre the giant walked through airports as I said all the time and people saw him and looked at him like this all the time. Susan has a brother that is 6-7, a big guy. And when we go into places, people don't look at me. They look at him. He's impressive looking. He's tall. Now when I think about Andre the giant, he was as he is tall as Much taller than Steve as Steve is to me. And so you can imagine everywhere he went he got this. And he's on his way to catch a plane. And what I love about this picture is the smile on his face that he's excited that this little boy sees him. It's a smile of grace and understanding. And the reason I like this is because... The little boy's face is how we ought to interact with God on a daily basis, especially in light of the story of Christmas. And Andre's face is, I believe, a shadow of the way God receives our all. Always joyful, always loving. I think about that passage, Zephaniah, that talks about that our God sings over us, that he delights in our love. He sings over us with singing, rejoices over us. This Christmas, take some time to be in awe. And then the second thing is, the way we respond is through devotion. Just devotion. Doing what God calls us to do. One of the things that I love about the story of the Phillips family that you heard from earlier today is that there was no reason in the world that they needed to leave the position they were in. He was in a great position in a great church doing what God had called him to do. And that church had never sent out a missionary with the North American Mission Board to plant a church like Chris. In fact, Chris told me that when he walked into the pastor's office, I know the pastor, the pastor said, I think you ought to reconsider. We can find for you something for you to do here. He said, do you really think that you need to go or you want to go? And Chris said, it's not a question of whether we want to go. It's the reality that this is what God has called us to do. One of the things I love about the offering we're about to give is that we support people internationally, here at home, around the world. That are just doing what God's called them to do. The all of their lives of what Christ has done for them. Has led them to devote their lives to telling others about him. We get to be a part of that. But my question for you today is. Is there an area of your life that God is calling you to devote to him. That you have not devoted to him. That you're not allowing to happen. And would you be willing today to do that?